2006, February 10th. Today will be Lecture 26 on Spiral Galaxies, which will begin in just a moment. Let's go. Today's lecture is going to now concentrate on spiral galaxies more generally. We've been looking for the last few days at the Milky Way and later Andromeda and trying to come up with some idea of what our galaxy looks like, viewing it from the inside and also looking at Andromeda as an analog. But now we want to step back a little bit and talk about galaxies more generally. And I'm going to start with talking about spiral galaxies in this class. On Monday, we'll talk about the different types of galaxies. We'll just sort of stay with our own class for the time being, as it were. The basic ideas today is, again, to review one of the key ideas from yesterday, namely that spiral galaxies all share a very similar structure. Even though they are as different as snowflakes are from each other, these are common structures that allow us to identify them, that make them distinctive. One of these is this disk and spheroid component structure. A spiral galaxy is also sometimes referred to generically as a disk galaxy because they have these very well-defined disks embedded in a large sparse spheroid of stars. One of the properties of that disk is that the disk actually rotates. It rotates because all the stars in it are orbiting in more or less the same direction in roughly circular orbits around the center of mass of the galaxy. We're going to see how that rotation sets up what's called a differential rotation pattern. It's not rotating around like a CD. It's actually rotating around a very different way that we're going to see called a differential rotation pattern. This is actually going to be very important to us because it gives us the only way we really have to directly measure the mass of a galaxy. Because we can use the orbital speeds, we can use a variation on Kepler's, Newton's version of Kepler's third law to actually measure the masses of galaxies. And we'll see how that's done in this lecture. Now the other thing that makes spiral galaxies distinctive are the spiral arms. So we want to spend about the other half of the lecture talking about what these spiral arms are and why they're important to us. They're basically outlines, they're waves that run through the disk. They're outlined by OB stars, by things called H2 regions and regions of gas. They're basically, as I said, repeating the, the ideas, they're waves. They're actually waves rolling through this otherwise simple disk, and they turn out to be sites of recent star formation. So that actually enhances their contrast because it's the only place you're going to find the hot blue stars. And those hot blue stars are very luminous for their mass, so they disproportionately shine and they make the spiral arms brighter than they would be if there was no, if the wave would still be there, but they make the spiral arms a lot brighter than they would be, and so make it often the most prominent thing about the galaxy. You can actually see the spiral structure in a handful of spirals, even just looking with your eye through a telescope, although most of what I'm going to show you are photographs where this really becomes clear. So let's go into today's topic is to talk about spiral galaxies. The Milky Way and Andromeda are examples of spiral galaxies. It's hard to see the spiral nature of our own Milky Way riding inside of it. You have to map out things like the positions of gas clouds, positions of open clusters and OB stars, and you can begin to do that. In fact, my thesis advisor, Don Osterbrock, back when he was a graduate student, actually worked on mapping out the positions of OB stars in our own galaxy and showed with his advisor, Bill Morgan, where, in fact, the nearby spiral arms were. But it's a real trick. It's really quite hard to do. When you can look at the galaxy from the outside, it's a whole lot easier. And so a lot of what we know about spiral galaxies doesn't actually come from studies of our own Milky Way, but by looking at other galaxies that are, to greater or lesser degrees, analogs <laughs> to the Milky Way. What we see is a basic two-part structure that we saw before, a thin disk of stars, gas, and dust, which forms the basic midplane of the galaxy. And then that entire disk of gas, dust, and stars is embedded in this larger, thick spheroid of, of stars, which has very little gas or dust associated with it. 
We can really only study the disks and spheroids of our own galaxy in the Milky Way in the kinds of level of detail where you're talking about individual stars. As we saw yesterday when we did that, the disk of the galaxy, the disk of a spiral galaxy, is primarily population one stars, metal-rich, relatively young stars, whereas the spheroid is population two, old, metal-poor stars. They're actually the first stars that formed in the galaxy, the disk formed in a subsequent formation. We'll hopefully say a little bit about that later on. We talk about the problem of galaxy formation, which is such a frontier topic, I'm probably going to defer it to the last week. Now, all the spirals that we see in the sky are going to have disks of varying sizes. Some of them are disk-dominated. Basically, all you see is a disk, and very, very little spheroid is obvious. Other galaxies will have a very prominent spheroid and relatively weak disks. So there's a very wide range of disks, but they all have a disk at some level. Spheroids can also vary very greatly in size from one galaxy to another. And we'll see various examples of that as we go on. And I've shown up here a really beautiful picture of a face-on spiral galaxy. This, in fact, is a, a picture that just came from the Hubble Space Telescope in the last couple of weeks. And it shows the really characteristic shape these have. It's a very bright in the center where the disk and the outer spheroid begin to merge together. And then you see this sort of pinwheel of spiral arms coming off. We're not going to see this grand design, you know, draw a galaxy, you know, give your kid a cart crayon and say, draw me a galaxy, kid. This is likely what they're going to draw you, is this kind of pinwheel kind of thing, if they know what a galaxy is, of course. Actually, a lot of them do. My nephews certainly did, but that's because I trained them right. Um, this is a classic picture of a galaxy, but they're all going to look different, but the common features are going to pop out. And after you look at a few thousand of these things, which I've looked at in my life, you get to a point where you actually can begin to actually recognize individual galaxies because there even are individual distinctive properties to them. You can sort of rattle their names off or their catalog designations. Here's the Sombrero galaxy. It's a gorgeous picture from the Hubble Space Telescope last year. And again, it exemplifies this disk structure. It's a flattened structure, a lot thinner than it is wide. On average, a typical disk in a galaxy is only about 1,000 parsecs thick, but it can extend in size 20, 30, 50 kiloparsecs. So it's actually rather, rather wide and thin. Surrounding that is the spheroid, which is this, again, spheroidal distribution of stars. The disk appears embedded within it. Now, the limitations of PowerPoint being what they are, I've drawn the spheroid as if it's somehow smaller than the disk. That's only just because I picked that line size. In reality, the spheroid extends much further out than the disk in many cases. When you talk about the size of a galaxy, I'll often talk about, yeah, 30, 40, 50 parsec, kiloparsecs across. It's actually kind of hard to actually define the size of a galaxy because they're not really that sharp edged. They kind of are fuzzy. They kind of fade out into the night and get thinner and thinner. They don't have sharp edges like stars have photospheres. Now, there are cases where galaxies can have their size restricted by things like tidal effects from surrounding galaxies and their environment. But for the most part, when we talk about the size, you've got to remember I'm kind of just saying, you know, measured in some common way out to some distance where I decide, yeah, I've measured enough, I'm going to stop. They don't have sharp edges for the most part. Now, the spheroid actually has some more detailed structure, and we're going to now introduce you to a little bit of that. We can divide the spheroid into an inner region and an outer region. The inner portion of the spheroid is called the bulge. And it's called that because it looks like the place where the disk kind of has a bulge embedded within it. The reason why we call it, we make it look distinctive is there's a lot of stars in the bulge, and so it's actually a lot brighter than the spheroid on average. These photographs that were taken with Hubble, were, of course, were made very, very deep images, so the spheroid comes up in high contrast. 
But in reality, if I just looked at the very short exposure of the, of the, of the sombrero galaxy, what I would see is you could sort of see where there's sort of this bulge in the middle here. It's basically where the inner spheroid and the disk begin to merge. By analogy with our own galaxy in Andromeda, the bulge is actually fairly distinctive in terms of its stellar content. There are a lot of Aurelyri stars there. There's a lot of older evolved stars, but they tend to be fairly metal rich. So it's a, it's a mixture of the bulge and the spheroid, uh, the disk and the spheroid population. And there's very little gas or dust associated with it. Whatever gas or dust is actually in the center portions of the galaxy tends to be down in the mid part of the disk. It actually tends to be just basically the extension of the disk moving in. Whereas the bulge seems to be this place where the, the disk and the spheroid are merging together. So you're getting kind of the oldest part of the disk, the oldest part of the inner parts of the galaxy. There was a question out there just before I... Oh, okay. The second piece, the outer, sparser part of the spheroid, you've actually heard me use this language before, we often refer to as the halo. It kind of surrounds the galaxy. It's very, very faint. You can see where this is a very deep exposure has been bringing the contrast up to make you be able to see it. This contains primarily old, very metal-poor stars. You don't find the kinds of metal-rich stars you find in the bulge. The bulge was subject to multiple generations of star formation enriching it, but forming very quickly early on. So it got all of its star formation done with a few billion years ago, but it went through multiple generations trapping metals. The halo is made up of the first or second generations of stars that form the galaxy and never underwent any subsequent star formation. All the, all the stars are basically sent out on these large elliptical orbits. They spend most of their time far away from the center of the galaxy. There's also clusters of stars in there which are left over probably from the assembly process of the halo and spheroid, which are the globular clusters are the most dense remnants of that. And those, again, are very old. For example, some of these objects down in here that are round and fuzzy in this deep exposure, you can see a few of them I'm kind of circling with my laser pointer. Those are not stars in our galaxy. Those are globular clusters in the halo of M104 here. That's what this image here was taken from some work by my colleagues of mine who are actually working on studying those globular cluster populations because they are the old, assembled bit, old bits left over from the assembly of this galaxy. And you also find, by analogy with our own galaxy, you expect to find a lot of Aurelyri stars. Now, for the most part, the study of Aurelyri stars in the bulges and halos of spiral galaxies is limited to the Milky Way and Andromeda. We simply, the stars are simply too faint to see in other galaxies. If we could build a super space telescope, we could probably start seeing the Aurelyri stars in the bulges of nearby spirals. But for the most part, we know they're there pretty much by analogy with the Milky Way and Andromeda. We expect they're there because we believe that stars evolve in the same way in these galaxies as they do in our own. I won't go into the details of how we know that. In fact, that's a lot of what the work people have done is showing that the star formation process is very similar from galaxy to galaxy. So all the stuff we learned in the previous weeks about the structure and evolution of stars applies to how galaxies work. The disk basically has a two-part structure. The thickest portion of the disk is a thick disk made up entirely of stars. It's a mixture of young and old stars. The older stars tend to be a little bit more puffed up and make a little bit thicker disk. So if you actually could peel away the layers of the disk in age, the oldest stars and the most metal-poor stars that make up the disk will form a very thick disk. The very youngest stars that have just now formed will actually be in a thinner layer and sort of all ages and gradations between. 
It's in the disk that I find the open clusters and the loose associations of OB stars that are beginning to come apart. I not only see this in the Milky Way and Andromeda, but in face-on disks I can identify open clusters in the best pictures, for example, from Hubble or from the ground. We also see Cepheid stars in the disk, because Cepheids are supergiant stars. They're only going to be in sites of recent star formation because they're only a few tens or hundreds of millions of years old. And so if I wanted to measure the distance to this galaxy by looking for Cepheid variables, I'm going to have to look in the disk. I'm going to have to look among the disk population, the POP1 stars in that galaxy. And sure enough, a lot of the nearby galaxies out to a distance of about 20 megaparsecs are found by finding Cepheid variables in the disks in the open clusters of those, of those galaxies. Now the other obvious feature of this picture is a beautiful edge on spiral galaxy here taken. This is a photograph taken from the 4 meter wind telescope at Kitt Peak. Is this very, very thin disk of dust and gas. It's a lot thinner than the disk. In fact, its typical thickness is only a few hundred parsecs in thickness compared to the thousand parsecs for the typical stellar disk. It's mostly composed of very, very cold atomic hydrogen gas, just simply a proton and electron and neutral atoms just running around in fairly cold clouds. Cold meaning about 100 degrees Kelvin. Plus dusty giant molecular clouds, which are much colder. Typical temperatures are 10 to 20 degrees Kelvin. But now the hydrogen is in the form of the H2 molecule, two hydrogen atoms bonded together into a molecule. And as we recall from last time talking about stellar evolution, this is the raw materials out of which new stars can form. So all the raw materials for fresh star formation are found in this disk. In fact, this picture is very nice because you can see how there's a sort of knots of blue light only found deep here in the plane of the disk, like right up here is a very nice place, whereas the outer light doesn't have those bright clumps of blue light. Those are actually recently formed star clusters. They form in proximity to their raw materials, the giant molecular clouds. This is why the younger stars in the disk are going to tend to be in the plane, very close to the midplane, because that's where all the gas and dust is. But the older stars eventually get stirred up by orbiting the galaxy many times and get puffed into the larger stellar disk when we see it edge on. We see this again in our own Milky Way. We can trace out the vertical structure of the disk locally by just looking up and down out of the plane and counting stars. And we can count stars by different populations and ages because we can do their spectrum. We then find when we then abstract that work to other galaxies, we find similar structures inside of them. But here we have the beautiful advantage that we can look at it from the outside. Because galaxies are sort of randomly oriented, I will find examples of perfectly face-on spirals, which can tell me about the structure across the face of the disk. And then like these, this galaxy, nearly edge-on spirals. And so by studying a large number of similarly structured spirals, I can piece together the whole story, even though I can't do what I'd really like to do, which is to fly out of the Milky Way and orbit around it a few times and get a, a multi-perspective view. So that's kind of how we've come to this whole view of, of spiral galaxies. We put together a lot of different data from a lot of different galaxies. So let's see some of the things we can do to measure about galaxies that's interesting. One of these, we can look at that disk. And the disk actually rotates. Now, the rotation really that we're seeing is the orbit of all the stars and gas and dust clouds that make it up orbiting around the center of mass of that galaxy. And that center of mass is not surprisingly centered on the dead center of the galaxy. There's lots of ways we can measure this, but of course the way we measure speeds in astronomy is through the Doppler effect. The galaxies are too far away to actually see them rotate in time. The so-called proper rotation that we mentioned, Adrian von Manen tried to observe in spiral nebulae 
back at the beginning of the 20th century. The rotation speeds of galaxies are way too slow, and the galaxies themselves are millions of parsecs away. So we would never see that slow turning as a proper rotation and angle in the sky. So we have to rely upon the projection of that orbital motion onto our line of sight so that stars appear on one part of the disk to be coming towards me, on another part of the disk going away. Those coming towards me are going to be Doppler shifted towards blue wavelengths. Those on the receding side are going to be Doppler shifted to red wavelengths. So if I could measure the stellar spectra, I would see the spectral lines of all the stars all bunched together moving towards me or away from me. And by working out the geometric projection from the shape on the sky, I can turn that into an orbital speed. Another way I can do that is some of the, re- some of the gas inside of this nebula is very, very thin, and inside of the galaxies are very, very thin and very, very hot. It's heated by the presence of the young O and B stars that have just been born inside that gas. They're still in proximity. It's a hot, thin gas. And Kirchhoff's, first, Kirchhoff's second law tells us that a hot, thin gas emits a bright emission line spectrum. And sure enough, these regions, we often call them H2 regions, H Roman numeral 2, which means basically ionized hydrogen for the most part, emits a bright emission line spectrum where I see lines of hydrogen, lines of nitrogen, lines of oxygen. Why, guess what? Lines of helium. All the bright elements emit lines, just like those discharge lamps. That we, that we looked at in demo in 161. So I can see those emission lines. They're very, very sharp. If one set of regions is coming towards me, those lines will be shifted towards blue wavelengths. If one set of lines is on the receding part of the galaxy, it will shift to redder wavelengths. I can use those Doppler shifts to measure the orbit speeds of those clouds. So I can measure the orbit of the stellar component. I can measure the orbit of the gas component. In fact, one of the best ways to trace out the rotation pattern of a galaxy, especially if it's rich in gas, is those H2 regions and those stars. Stars are really faint. It's really hard to get a spectrum of stars in a spiral galaxy. H2 regions kind of just are spotty. It's wherever the OB stars happen to form. Most of the gas in the disk is made up of cold atomic hydrogen. It turns out that atomic hydrogen in its cold state actually emits a bright emission line at radio wavelengths. 21 centimeters, or those of you who want to dial it in, at 1,420 megahertz on the radio dial. It turns out that because we can measure that radio line in the laboratory using what's called a hydrogen maser to ridiculous accuracy, the, the, exact, frequ- the exact rest frequency of the hydrogen, ma- hydrogen radio line is in fact known to 14 decimal places. So I can measure, and I can see this gas everywhere, filling the entire volume, for the most part, of that spiral galaxy. I can map trace out the gas and the motions of this galaxy in tremendous detail using the 21-centimeter line. Furthermore, because the gas disk often extends far beyond where I can see the faintest stars, where the stars just fade into the background sky, I can actually trace the rotation very, very far out. In some galaxies, the rotation pattern in spiral galaxies has been traced out to 100 or even 150 kiloparsecs from the center. So this can be a very, very good tracer of well past where the stars have thinned out, we still see the disk of gas way out there. Just too thin for that gas to have formed into stars. So these are all the, the effects that I can use. What we model the disk of the galaxy is as a kind of a rotating disk. The rotation axis is perpendicular to the plane of the disk. The side that's approaching me is going to be blue shifted. The side that's receding from me is going to be red shifted. And then I measure how the, the rotation speed varies as I move in radius outward from the center of the galaxy out to the furthest distance away from the center I can measure 
before my tracers run out, whether I run out of stars or I run out of H2 regions or I run out of hydrogen gas. Now what we find when we do this is that disk, the disk rotates about the center, the geometric center of the light in the galaxy. So the center of the galaxy really is the dynamical center of this thing as well. It really is at the center of mass. The inner parts of the galaxy are in what's called solid body rotation. What solid body rotation means is they're, they're rotating just like a wheel on a car or a CD in a CD player. It spins around and around at exactly the same or orbital period. It takes exactly the same amount of period to go around. But as you go further out from the center in solid body rotation, to complete your circumference is bigger. Circumference is 2 pi times the radius of the circle. If you complete that circumference in the same amount of time as, a, as an inner star, which is moving on a small circle, you've got to be moving at a faster speed to cover that. Again, think of inside track versus outside track on a circular racetrack. You want to be on the inside track because you can make a complete circle by running at a slower speed. You have a smaller circumference. So what you get in solid body rotation is the orbital speed increases linearly with wavelength. You go two times further out, you've got to go two times faster to make it around the circle in the same time, the orbital period. However, at some point out of the inner portions and where that inner turnover point is, as it may turn out to be very important for understanding the internal structure of galaxies, when we get to the outer parts, we find that something interesting happens. The orbital speed stops increasing and actually flattens out and becomes nearly constant with radius. You often have to get very far away before the orbital speed begins to fall off. Now, because the orbital speed is nearly constant, as you move further out in the galaxy, you have a much larger circumference and so the orbital period, the amount of time it takes you to go once around, begins to increase. So there's a very big change in how stars begin to orbit from the inner parts to the outer parts. This speed being nearly constant with radius turns out to be a real surprise. And we'll talk about that a little later in the class when we talk about the subject of dark matter. This is the first indication that something funny is going on in the sides of the galaxies because Kepler's laws of orbital motion predicted that the speed should in fact begin to fall as you get far away from the center of the galaxy. It shouldn't remain constant. It's a mystery, and it took us a while to figure out how to actually do that. So if I was to measure the rotation curve for a galaxy, what the rotation curve is is a measure of the rotation speed in kilometers per second as a function of radius from the center usually expressed in kiloparsecs. And this is actually a schematic, but it's based on actual data. It's not too different from what we see in our own Milky Way. There's an inner region of solid body rotation where the speed rises from zero up to a few hundred kilometers per second. And then it kind of tops out and begins to tool along at more or less constant speed. There are bumps and wiggles because there's structure in the disk, maybe acceleration or deceleration in the presence of spiral arms, for example. But pretty much keeps a constant speed, resulting in something called differential rotation. Now, solid body rotation, I can imagine. That's just simply me standing here with my arms out, turning around and around. Right? My, the tips of my fingers are moving a lot faster than my elbows, which are moving a lot faster than my shoulders, than are my ears. But we're all taking the same amount of time to turn around once. If I don't stop that, I'm going to get dizzy and fall over. Differential rotation would be if I tried to impose the same speed. Well, I can't do that without twisting up, so we'll do it with a picture. We know differential rotation works in galaxies because it works in the Milky Way. Let's start with the sun here, and we'll look at a star. This orange star is closer to the center of the galaxy than the blue star, which is further away. 
They have the same orbital speed, about 200 kilometers a second. The orange star is on the inside track. The blue star is on the outside track. The sun is just in the middle. Let's set them into motion. After a certain amount of time, the sun has moved out to that position, but the orange star, which is moving at the same speed but on the inside track, covers a bigger angle, whereas the outer star lags behind. So what I see is, if I'm initially lined up with the galactic center, front and back, by the time I've orbited some fraction of the way around, the star towards the galactic center is actually, actually I've done that backwards, the star at the galactic center has gotten ahead of me and is appearing to move ahead, whereas the star behind me is appearing to peel out behind me. I can look out into the Milky Way galaxy, I can look at stars closer to the galactic center than I am, and see, in fact, they have a component where they're actually leading the sun around the Milky Way. And if I look behind me towards the anti-center, the stars out there are all lagging behind. That observation by a guy named Jan Oort actually established the differential rotation of the Milky Way galaxy. If it was solid body rotation, then if I started out in a line, I would stay lined up all the way around. So the differential rotation is simply because I have the same orbital speed, but at different radii, I have larger or smaller distances I have to travel to go around once, and so I begin to smear out into an angle. You'll notice this angle of shear that we have across here is very important for giving us a lot of the structures we see inside of spiral galaxies. Now, as we've said before in this class, one of the hardest things to measure after distances is the masses of objects, because I have to be able to see orbital motions. Clearly, the motions I'm seeing in the, in the spiral galaxy are just that. They're orbits around the center of mass of the galaxy. So this gives me a way to measure the mass inside of a galaxy. But it's not the total mass of the galaxy, because there's a little subtlety with Newtonian physics. Newton's gravity, if I take the, basically take the circular velocity formula that, that was oh, important for, oh, say, the homework, um, and write it down in terms of now solving it for the mass algebraically, I find out that the mass enclosed within my radius, interior to the radius I'm lying at, is my rotation speed squared. I'm assuming it's a circular rotation, times the radius divided by this gravitational constant, g. So what this means is that what, I, what really determines how fast the sun orbits around the Milky Way is not the total mass of the Milky Way, but the mass interior to the sun's orbit. It depends a little bit on the mass outside, but it turns out that the mass outside of your orbit, if you were in a perfect sphere, would exactly cancel and have zero impact. All that would matter is the mass below your feet. Now, it's not exactly that way for a disk galaxy, but the correction is very small. So to a first approximation, I can say that the total rotation speed that I get is basically determined by the mass under my feet, the mass inside or enclosed by my orbit. So there's two observables here, in principle. The speed of rotation, which I get at any given radius by measuring a rotation curve for a galaxy, whether I use stellar Doppler shift or gas Doppler shifts from emission lines in nebulae or 21 centimeter radio. The radius I measure by measuring the angle on the sky times the distance to the galaxy. And I have some way of measuring the distance to that galaxy through means we've discussed and a few we haven't discussed yet. But just assume that I can measure the distance. So that gives me the velocity squared and the distance, and g is just, well, it's just the gravity constant. So I can use, turn that rotation curve into the mass enclosed within a given radius. Well, let's actually do that for the Milky Way. 
because I can measure the speeds reasonably well, and I kind of know how far away I am from the center. The sun is located at a radius of 8 kiloparsecs from the center of the Milky Way, and we can measure our rotation speed by this very complicated trick of looking at our relative motion relative to the stars around us. It took us a long time to do this, and people still argue about this number. I'll use a number here of 220 kilometers a second. On the homework, I had you use 200, 200 kilometers a second. It's within the range. If I plug those into that formula, I find out that the mass enclosed inside of 8 kiloparsecs is about 9 times 10 to the 10 solar masses. That's 90 billion solar masses. So in order for the sun to be orbiting around the Milky Way at 8,000 parsecs from the center at a speed of about 200 kilometers a second requires 9 times 10 to the 10 solar masses of everything inside of me. So all the stars added up, all the gas added up, all the anything that has matter added up between me and the center of the galaxy inside that 8 kiloparsec circle all the way around, including the spheroid, that, that amount of mass adds up to about 9 times 10 to the 10. The central black hole mass, as we saw yesterday towards the end, turns out to only be about 3 times 10 to the 6. It's really one part in 30,000 of this. So the fact that there's a central black hole in our galaxy is utterly irrelevant to the orbit of the sun. If I made that black hole go away, it wouldn't change the orbit speed one iota. So the fact that we've got a supermassive black hole in the center is nice, but you have to get, remember, very close to a black hole before it matters. And this shows you that the mass of that black hole is insignificant compared to the mass of everything else added up inside of our orbit. If I go further out, let's say I find a gas cloud in the outer part of the Milky Way at a distance about twice as far out, 16 kiloparsecs. The rotation speed out there I measure is about 275 kilometers per second. This gives a total mass enclosed inside of 16 kiloparsecs of about 2.8 times 10 to the 11 m sun. That's 280 billion solar masses. Obviously, the way to measure the mass of the entire Milky Way is find the outermost thing you can and measure its orbit. That will turn out to be satellite galaxies of our own in the end, and it brings the mass, total mass of the Milky Way, disk plus spheroid, up to about 1 trillion solar masses in round numbers. That's an awful lot of material. The Milky Way is actually not the biggest galaxy in the universe, but it's pretty darn big. It's an example of a big, bright galaxy. Furthermore, I can do this for any galaxy for which I can measure its rotation curve. But obviously, to get total mass, I have to measure the mass motions as far away as I possibly can. And that's a bit of a challenge, but we've certainly done it. And we find that a trillion solar masses worth of stuff is not unusual for spiral galaxies like our own. So that's one of the real advantages of measuring the rotation curves. It gives us a way of measuring these masses. We're going to see different methods come into play with different types of galaxies. So again, the bottom line here is measuring the rotation curve is a good way to measure the masses of spiral galaxies. That's why we do this process. It also gives us something else. The rotation curve with radius tells us the mass distribution inside of a galaxy because to a first approximation, the speed you have is due to the mass interior to that orbit. We're going to save the conclusions of that for a different lecture because it turns out to be a real surprise. It takes a whole lecture to explain. <laughs> now, the other feature of a spiral galaxy are, the, obviously, from its name, the spiral arms. The spiral arms turn out to be a regular spiral-shaped pattern composed primarily of hot stars, star clusters, and gas and dust that cross the face of the disk of the galaxy. 
Some work that's been done by a number of people in recent years using infrared imaging technology where you can see the light primarily from old stars and kind of ignore the light from the hot stars, which emit mostly the ultraviolet. A lot of that work was done at Ohio State by some colleagues and myself have found that the spiral structure actually persists into the old stars as well. We, we don't see it as strong, but it's still there. So it's a general wave pattern in the general distribution of old and young stars but when I take a visible light photograph, it's the hot blue stars that really jump out at me and increase the contrast of these spiral arms. The basic tracers, the things that actually make the spiral arms stand up, are mainly old, very, I'm sorry, very, very young O and B stars. These are hot young stars that have just formed. H2 regions, which are these star-forming regions, this is gas lit up by the ultraviolet radiation from the hot O and B stars that just formed inside them, causing that gas to, according to Kirchhoff's second law, light up and fluoresce with emission lines. If I map the galaxies instead with a millimeter wave telescope that's sensitive to emission from molecules, cold molecules like carbon monoxide, for example, I can actually see the giant molecular clouds actually seem to form a spiral pattern. If I wanted to find a giant molecular cloud in a spiral galaxy, the first place I'd go looking is in the arms. Hydrogen gas and dust clouds also tends to pile up in the spiral arms. If I look for a dust cloud, I want to find a cloud of particulate, fine bits of matter, I'm going to look in the spiral arms. I'm not going to look elsewhere. In fact, in general, these tracers are so strong that we rarely, if ever, find O and B stars, H2 regions, molecular clouds, or hydrogen gas clouds, dense hydrogen gas clouds, especially dust clouds, outside of the spiral arms. You don't find them in the interarm region very often. You do find some, but the, the density of the stuff and the population of that stuff is just way down. Mostly what you find in the interarm zone are older stars that make up the general stellar disk and the general sort of random cold clouds that make up the gas component of that disk. You really do see when you make radio maps, which map out gas, or visible maps that map out starlight or emission lines, they really do pile up in the spiral arms. Well, let's look at a really classic spiral. This is the same Whirlpool Nebula that Lord Ross saw through his telescope. This is a beautiful mosaic which has just been made in the last few months by the Hubble Space Telescope. It shows the central bulge face on, and now you can see this beautiful, what we call a grand design spiral structure. You can see how it's blue in, in color, whereas the central bulge and kind of the interarm region are kind of yellowish in color. Blue for hot young stars, yellowish, kind of the general run of older evolved stars. These bright red patches here are gas clouds that are lit up and illuminated by hot O and B stars. These are the H2 regions. You can see the dark traceries of dust in here. This is the dark particulate matter which is piling up in the proximity of molecular clouds and hydrogen gas clouds. In fact, you can see there's a little companion galaxy to the whirlpool, and you can see the dust superimposed upon what is actually an older population of stars. See how they're kind of yellowish? We're going to see this a lot when we look at more pictures of galaxies over the next few days. Spiral patterns or spiral galaxies are beautiful. Uh, first time I ever got to a telescope with a modern electronic detector, the very first thing I did was go out and take a picture of a spiral galaxy. This is another picture from the Hubble Space Telescope, a color picture. Again, it, it, this is a beautiful barred spiral called NGC 1300. You again see the older stars of the central bulge and bar. They're kind of yellowish. And then right at the edge of the blue stars, you can just see how these spiral arms are just laid out with cluster after cluster of hot blue stars. The emphasis on the red light from the H2 regions, the other image was over-enhanced, the contrast in those. But you can see this tracering of little dots of red light. 
In my own PhD dissertation years ago, I took a picture of this galaxy in the emission, light of the emission line of hydrogen. And what happened is the starlight falls away and you just see the H2 regions just fluffing all along the spiral arms, tracing them out. And then, of course, if you look carefully, you can see this traceries of dust on the inside of the spiral arm. This is a case where now the spiral structure is less well-defined. You less have that grand design two-arm spiral. And now you're getting kind of a multi-arm pinwheel. This is often called a flocculent spiral. We'll see those a little bit later. You know, it looks like little flocks of sheep, little flocculi running around, puffs of cotton here. Clumps of old blue stars threaded through with dust. But again, you can see this. Dust and blue stars, dust and blue stars, all the way around. These are just tremendously beautiful pictures. And then when you get into the inside, the light becomes more yellow. You're getting more of the bulge light, the old evolved stars, the red giants giving you a reddish color on top of this. Spiral arms are sites of active star formation. If I s we know that the sun is pretty old. The sun will live to about 12 billion years. It turns out the sun takes about 200 million years to go once around the galaxy. So if you take 200 million years and you divide that by, take, ask how many times can I go around in 12 billion years, the answer is about 50 or 60 times. So from the moment the sun is born until the sun basically winks out as a white dwarf and begins fading away, it'll complete 40 or 60 orbits around the center of our Milky Way. O and B stars don't live very long. They live 10 million years. So if an O or B star formed at the same distance of the sun from the center of the galaxy, then if it goes supernova after about 10 million years, and it takes 200 million years to go around, it's only going to move about 10 or 20 degrees along its very first orbit before, bang, it's gone, and leaves behind a neutron star or a black hole. So if you see an OB star, it hasn't had time to move very far from its birthplace. And so not surprisingly, if we see OB stars tracing out the spiral arms, that tells us right away that the spiral arms are the primary sites of star formation because the orbit times are so long to go around the galaxy, the OB star simply can't live long enough to move far from its birthplace. And so the spiral arms are pretty clearly, the star spiral arms in the H2 regions are just strung out along the spiral arms, in the words of Walter Botta, like beads on a string. So they're the sites of active star formation. How is that? Why does that actually work? Well, you can see this in a zoom picture. This is taking that M31 picture, and now I'm going to trace out one of those spiral arms, you can see, it turns out the pattern of rotation is that stars actually rotate through the spiral arms. So we can see stars and gas enter the spiral arm, and then downstream, I get the H2 regions and the bright blue star clusters. Inside the curve of the spiral, there's very little. There's a little bit. There's a tiny bit. You'll notice it's always associated with dense clouds of gas and dust. So it's only on the outskirts. You sort of pass through the spiral arm on the inside of the curve. You don't get a whole lot of star formation. On the outside of the curve, bang, the thing lights up like a Christmas tree. The star formation is getting triggered where there's a pileup of dense gas and dust. Right here is that dense clouds of gas pass through the spiral arm. So what are these spiral arms? Well, basically, they're waves. They're waves of density where stars, gas, and dust pile up and then roll through the disk like water waves. Density waves are kind of an orbital traffic jam. Orbits kind of tend to crowd together as you go through them. A good analogy for a density wave you've all encountered is imagine you're going down a four-lane highway and all the four lanes are open, the traffic's just cruising along, and then you come across a place where they're doing construction in two lanes. What happens? 
the cars all have to bunch over into the outer two lanes and they slow down. So if you flew a helicopter over the road, you'd see low density cars all all spread out, a high density where the traffic jam was, and then once you clear the traffic jam, the traffic spreads out again. Now imagine as that construction moves down the road, you would see this density wave moving through. The cars pass through the density wave, but there's a pileup of cars near the construction zone, near the constri construction. That's exactly what happens in a spiral arm. Except here, instead of cars, it's stars and gas clouds, and the gas clouds get brought together. They actually do what cars are not supposed to do in the construction zone, that's crash. And when they crash together, it triggers the clouds to collapse, and we trigger the whole star formation process. The O and B stars that form ionize the leftover gas and give us the H2 regions. But it's downstream. The wreckage travels through the wave and ends up on the downstream side. This is what the orbits actually look like. They tend to be nested ellipses, which have been rotated a little bit. And you can see how these orbits, the star just follows its elliptical orbit, but each outer one is slightly twisted. There are places where they kind of bunch together and places where they're spread out. The places where they bunch together forms a beautiful two-arm spiral structure. And that's exactly what we're seeing. So the way to think about it is the density waves kind of pass through the disk like water waves passing through an ocean. The stars move through the spiral arms, the gas clouds are associated, and they move on through like traffic moving through. What we don't know, we don't understand very well, is how these waves are excited in the disk. They may come and go, they may be done by passing galaxies, they may be excited by bars. There's lots of ways to do this. We haven't got a consensus because all these ways are effective at making spiral arms. It's still a mystery and one that we haven't solved. Any questions? Okay, very good. You can pick up your test today, and I will see you all on Monday. Have a good weekend. Oops. Oh, thank you. I have a question about the G and this formula. What does that stand for? Sure.